Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Anyone following the business of Big Low will be familiar with today's guest. Over the past few years, Roy Strom has been one of the key reporters covering the country's biggest law firms and how money flows to the legal system. His weekly column, Big Law Business, examines the economics, cultures, and personalities inside law firms in an increasingly competitive industry. For the past five years, he's focused on change in big law, devoting his 100th column to the accelerating pace of change in the industry. In today's conversation, we talk about his take on the recent Upsolve, Inc. decision in New York, which opens the door for non-lawyer legal practitioners. We talked about how his passion for the Cubs led to his career as a legal reporter and the trend lines that he sees in the industry post-pandemic. Hi, Roy. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for joining. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Roy, before we get started, you wrote a column today on the Upsolve case, which I thought was some was an interesting development. You want to share your... We're not big on current events on this podcast, but I, I can't help since this was a fairly... I don't know if I don't know how significant the decision is, but a fairly interesting decision. Yeah. And you wrote today on it. Any thoughts on that decision? Yeah, well, it was it was a nonprofit in New York who wanted to basically train everyday people to be able to provide some pretty basic legal advice for New Yorkers who were facing debt collection lawsuits, which are kind of a nuisance in New York. A lot of them are filed kind of baseless, uh, either targeting the wrong person or for debts that have been paid already. And uh, many of them, I think they've cited studies that said 75, 80 percent of them never even the defendant doesn't respond. So they have a default judgment. And this nonprofit wanted to train people to help them fill out a one page response that New York has developed that includes, I think, 24 affirmative defenses to the uh, debt collection suit. And it would be free. They're not charging money. And uh, before they started this program, they filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York asking basically for an okay to say that the uh, New York Attorney General wouldn't sue them for the unauthorized practice of law. Of course, they took a lot of steps to train these people. They used lawyers to do it. And all they were asking them was really, it seems like, for the ability to tell someone, check that box or don't check this box. So I think Upsolve did a really good job of putting themselves in a position where they were able to say, hey, we're not asking to do all that much. It's pretty obvious that this sort of thing can be handled by someone who's been trained in sort of the substance of this particular legal matter. And the judge agreed. He says, basically, I have a free speech right to say, check that box. This is kind of how I wrote about it. And I think it makes sense, I guess. I compared it to the George Carlin sketch where he talked about the seven words you can't say on TV. Yeah, I thought I love that uh, particular analogy. That was great. Because, of course, you can't go into a courtroom if you're not a lawyer and make big, long arguments. But the context here matters. All they wanted to do was say, check that box. So I just thought it was it's a small step. I don't think Upsolve is going to be asking to send lawyers into courtrooms and act like an attorney in a courtroom anytime soon. But I just think it was a common sense. I was glad to see a judge, I guess, have a sort of common sense approach to this 
case, and hopefully that can be applied. I would think most other nonprofits would say hopefully that can be applied to other programs like this, maybe for different types of cases, help people. Yeah, I found the case. I haven't gotten through all 32 pages of the decision yet, but, you know, I thought it was an interesting. It does seem like common sense, but common sense in this industry is not always the end result. But you've seen it. I think you you referenced it in your article. You know, the sandbox experiment in Utah, the work Arizona is doing, some work being done in the state of Washington. It'll be interesting to see whether this more common sense approach takes root and sort of gains any traction. Because this, I know most of what we're going to talk about today deals with big law, but there's an awful lot of people in this country that don't have access to lawyers or legal help in any way. It has nothing to do with big law. Well, it's a huge problem. It's a it's a very serious problem. And I think people are finally starting to realize that the typical approaches to it are very limited, aren't solving it. And it's kind of exciting to see new opportunities. No, I think that's right. Let's back up for a second, Roy. You're a journalist reporting on the legal profession. You got your degree in journalism, I think, if I recall correctly. Right, from Mizzou. Right, which is a great journalism school. And so you, you, you went to college wanting to be a journalist. What took you into the path of focusing your reporting on the legal profession? Yeah, it wasn't anything I ever would have anticipated or expected or was looking to do. I don't know any law. I didn't know any lawyers personally. I don't, there's no lawyers in my family. I went to Mizzou because I wanted to be a sports writer. I thought the best job in the world would be to be able to write about the Chicago Cubs every day. Some years, yes, and some years, no. <laughs> Most years, definitely not. But I went to Mizzou, I did some sports writing, and I didn't like it as much as I thought I would because it sort of turned your hobby into your job. I just didn't enjoy going to games and being on the clock, so to speak. But I had an interest in business since pretty much forever. I grew up in a family that uh, had a family business for a very long time, and it was in uh, waste removal, the garbage industry, and excavating. And I was fascinated by it. I really, I spent my summers working there. And um, I really enjoyed getting to understand business, particularly in the garbage industry, just about kind of the ins and outs of it and figuring out kind of the strategies. It's basically an industry where you're trying to minimize your time and your distances from each stop because your costs depend on how, how long your truck is on the road and how long your guys are working. And so... I could kind of see how that it was, it was, it made sense to me and it was interesting. So I always wanted to learn more about businesses and how they worked and sort of understanding them more. And so when I was at Mizzou and getting sort of jaded on writing about football or basketball, I transitioned to writing about business for, uh, or covering business topics in the community around Mizzou, doing it for the NPR affiliate down there, which the school owned and let the students work for. And I had a, this was when they thought blogs were going to be the next medium to really go off. And so you had to, you had to have a blog at Mizzou when I was there. Oh, I remember those days. Yes. (laughs) And I didn't want to be writing like a lot of folks were just about blogging about their everyday life. I thought if I was writing about my weekends in college, I'd never get a job. So I was an econ minor and I wrote a blog. It was called My Random Walk Down Wall Street. And I would give myself a fake amount of money in a Yahoo trading account. I would 
trade stocks and write about why I was picking these companies and use some very basic uh, attempted analysis. But I liked it. And I parlayed that into a uh, internship coming out of college at Reuters in New York covering uh, publicly traded companies. And that was a great experience. And um, at the end of it, I moved to Chicago where I'm from just outside Chicago. And I started working in their newsroom on weekends and sort of as a stringer, didn't get a full-time job. This was back in 2011 when the media industry was really sort of struggling. And a reporter there who was really senior and who uh, kind of took me under a wing a little bit said, well, if you want to get a job in journalism, you should go work at a trade publication and build your sources and your skills and get some experience that way. So I put an application in at the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin here in uh, Chicago and end up working there for about five years covering uh, law firms, legal industry, and pretty much anything else. And uh, that's how it happened, just looking to get a, a foot in the door in the industry. And I ended up kind of really liking, I say this a lot, but I, people laugh at me, but I really enjoy my time with lawyers. I think they're smart people. They've been really kind to me for the most part, even when I'm writing stories that they don't agree with. But I've just been doing it ever since. So it's been uh, over 10 years now. What was it about the Chicago Law Bulletin that intrigued you to pick that trade magazine, that trade, that industry? Because they're they're not the only, it's not the only industry out there. Yeah, it's a good question. The person who told me to do it said that they're usually hiring. <laughs> well, that's, 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 a, that's a good thing. <laughs> so that was kind of how it happened. Uh, and I wanted to stay in Chicago. And it's, it was a good opportunity, I thought. So, and they wanted me specifically to cover the business of the legal industry. So I thought it's just as good as any other. Why not? I'm curious. You focused on business and then you moved into focusing on the business side of the legal industry. What, what has surprised you the most about the way the industry operates? We've got a lot of stuff to talk about. So I'm curious as what you're just as a rational allied professional in the industry. What's been surprising to you? I remember one of my first assignments at the Chicago Lawyer was it was like a managing partners. They asked me to talk to all these managing partners in Chicago at these big law firms and just to sort of profile them and write about what their jobs were like. And I assumed they were like any other CEO or boss or whatever and get to tell people what to do, get to, you know, be the guy in the corner office who's maybe red in the face and barking out orders and <laughs> I took that image to them and they all did what you're doing. They laughed at me, you know, they said, boy, you don't get it. You do not get it. And uh, you could extend that learning experience pretty much throughout. And I think the most surprising thing has been and the most interesting thing has been is how these large organizations have to manage the professionals that define them and that own them ultimately. And it's a really intriguing business proposition because they're very smart people. They're extremely talented in what they do. They've got opportunities elsewhere if they wanted to pursue them, most likely. And at the same time, they're being asked to weigh in or they have to give their opinion about the direction of the firm. And I think it's just kind of an interesting, it's an environment that's sort of rich with just tension a little bit. I think there's a tension there that I've really enjoyed learning more about and understanding and writing about. It is a fascinating industry. Having spent my professional life in it, it's 
I'm sorry to have the same reaction the others had. <laughs> but uh, how little I knew, you know, I didn't know a thing. Yeah, well, we all we all learn. We all learn. You've written well over a hundred columns now for Bloomberg Law, focused on all sorts of things. What trend lines do you see in the industry, particularly as a result of the pandemic, which seems never to be ending? One of your first articles was uh, talking about the pace of change in big law or lack thereof. Do you still hold that opinion? Or I've also seen articles you've written recently about how maybe that's been different. Maybe the pandemic has forced change on the industry. What, what, What do you see as a trend line? No, I think I've been writing about change in the big law industry for probably like five or six years or so. And it's always been an easy thing to say that change is slow or doesn't happen or to poke fun at that. And that was the first column I wrote for Bloomberg Law was that, uh, you know, big law is slow to change. I said, that's an opportunity. If you're able to spot an opportunity more quickly than a competitor, then obviously you might have a better chance pulling it off, whatever the case might be, which is just a nice little you know, writing twist, whatever. But for the hundredth column I wrote, I said big law is changing faster than ever. And I can't recall all of the all the examples I use, but it, it has changed more quickly. And I think it's these firms have responded more quickly to a very dynamic market to changes that I don't think they would have anticipated. You know, if you would have said that name your top five law firm, top 20 law firm, that they would have lawyers in Salt Lake City or Austin, Texas, or these other places. I I think most of those managing partners would have done to me what they did to me when I said they were all mean and angry bosses. They would have left, you know, so. And that's obviously a small change, but I think their experience adapting to a very fast changing market gives them more leeway in other ways. It gives them an experience to say, we can change. You know, we can, we don't have to do everything the same. It's possible to expand our horizons and to switch things up more frequently than they might have done in the past. I mean, you could also take the view of remote work because you know, they had partners that were probably still printing out, having an assistant print out emails before the pandemic hit. Well, if that person is working from home, using their computer by themselves, that's a growing expense, a learning experience for that person, probably one they never would have anticipated. And I would have to think it would make them a little bit more welcoming to change, just like generally. If you never thought you could work from home and then you did it successfully every day for two years, it would have to expand your view on people's ability to do things differently. That's my own opinion, of course. It makes sense. You talked about it in terms of using the Salt Lake City example, that firms are not as wedded to prestige or prestige locations as they used to be. How are you seeing that manifest itself? Do you think that's, you think that's a trend that's going to become a big one in the law firm industry? That's a really good question, and I don't know the answer to it right now. I've written a little bit about what's going to happen to these lawyers in these remote locations who were added. Really, strategically, like if you think about why go into a place like Salt Lake City or somewhere else, not to knock any of these places, but just the fact is the law firms, major law firms hadn't done it before. So you ask, well, why did they do it? It was because they had a huge inflow of work. They were struggling to retain people in the cities where they predominantly had practiced forever. They had understood that people can work well remotely. 
And there was available talent in these available professionals in these new cities. So then they did it. These people are there. They're working. Presumably, it's go- if you assume it's going well, then you have to ask, I guess, down the line, do all those factors that led them there in the first place continue? And I guess the two biggest ones that could stand out as tricky would be the overall demand. Right? I don't think anybody really expects the past two years are the demand curve sort of shifted drastically to the right for good. I don't know if it did or not, but it seems kind of a risky proposition to assume it did. So then if you're in an environment where demand's down or back to a more regular place, you still have these people working for you in a city you're not terribly committed to, then I guess it falls individually to, well, how good are they? You know, are they really doing great work? then you probably keep them. And if they're not engaged in the firm, if they're not getting the capability, you know, the sort of work opportunities that they might want, maybe they're not as interested in staying or the firm realizes that they were kind of maybe like a surplus supply for this work that didn't stick around. And that's when I think the firms will have to figure out what do they want to do with these new geographies. But I don't know the answer to all those questions. Yeah, there's an interesting push-pull that goes on here. On the one hand, you have this, the demand, is, as you pointed out, the demand has been increasing. Supply of talented lawyers gets exhausted in the traditional markets. And you've got technology that allows you to work from anywhere. And many people in the pandemic have left cities and moved to other places. On the other hand, and I see this talked about at conferences now and talk, you know, there's this sort of snap back to normal. Piece. You know, oh, our culture of our firm requires people to be in the office or to be in person. And there's this pull back to what they viewed as normal before then. And where it settles out, I think, is is anybody's guess. No, I totally agree. I, I, I think uh, if you look back five years from now, it could go either way. It could We could be looking at an industry that looked like it did in 2019, could be looking at an industry that didn't that looked like it did in 2020 or Something totally different. I don't know. I I, uh, I think firms want to snap back, like you say. They're very committed to their office cultures. They, of course, spend a lot of money on leases. But I think firms who are just sort of regimented in that type of thinking, I think it'll fade away. I don't see a full-blown snap back. I just think that's a kind of a be tough to pull off, I think. It would be tough to pull off, if nothing, because the younger generations... I think, want something different. They want a different working relationship. They want to be mentored. They want to be coached. They want to be taught. But they also want the flexibility to work from where it's convenient for them to work. Yeah, and it's a hard thing It's a hard thing to demand them to stop doing it if or when you didn't tell them while they were doing it, this isn't working. You know, if you say, you guys did a great job working from home. Let's get back in the office. They say, why? <laughs> right. Why do I want those two hours on the road every day? No, that's right. Do you think the industry has learned lessons from the pandemic that they'll apply? Let's assume we do head into a recession, as people seem to be predicting, at the beginning of next year, and it impacts the legal industry. Do you think there are lessons we've learned, particularly early in the pandemic, where so many firms responded quickly by furloughing and and reducing people? Do you think that trend will manifest itself again should we have another economic downturn? 
So I guess if there is another downturn, I mean, when there's another downturn, it will be interesting to see how the firms respond, because I think they weren't criticized as harshly as they were going in 2009. Of course, the layoffs from 2008, 2009 were really sort of widely criticized. And they're, it's a hard thing to do as such a people business, but they're also your biggest cost. But I think like a broader lesson that the pandemic showed us is that these firms or maybe like the prevailing model of large law firms aren't necessarily well designed to manage large swings in demand. Because if you even look at the way firms responded to what we would assume was a good thing, a surge in demand, you can also look and see it caused a lot of stress inside these places. Of course, partners at the end of the year earned a lot of money, but there were associates and partners who were really working harder than I think most managing partners who I talked to would have liked. It caused concern about burnout. Of course, you had a huge attrition issue. Some associates leaving law firms to move to a similar law firm just for two or three weeks of sort of clean desk, you know, waiting for their matters to build back up just because they got to a sort of boiling point or because the other firm was offering a whole bunch of uh, signing bonus to lure them over, uh, which, you know, associates getting raises and being paid more for the hard work they do is great. But from the firm perspective, there's a lot of stress that I'll cause for things like staffing cases, getting all this work done. And if you go, and I'm trying to figure this out myself, is there any benefit for the next recession if it happens sooner, like if it happens next month than if it happens in a year coming off of such strong performance. But I'm not sure the answer is like inherently yes, even though these partners earned probably 20 to 30 percent more than they would have anticipated over the past two years, because the pull or the urge for these firms to continue growing their profitability is very strong. I don't think any of them will assume that every firm will contract profit-wise, revenue-wise during a recession because it didn't happen necessarily last time. Some firms did better than others. And you would hope, you would maybe think that from like a personal standpoint, you'd be able to withstand a recession better tomorrow coming off of such a strong performance. You might be able to say, hey, look, if you want to get rid of you know, John Doe associate, don't you remember six months ago when he was working 3,500 hours a year and we all had, you know, we, we went through this sort of torturous time together and the, and the, these people really pulled it out for us. I don't know. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it's going to be fascinating to watch. You, you work on the assumption there, there will be another economic downturn at some point just because that's the way economic cycles work. And one of the things the pandemic taught law firms was how to reduce expenses in short order. Because in, in 2020, that's how a lot of them made. Demand didn't really change that much, but their expense load dropped dramatically. And so it fell to the bottom line of the partner's pockets. Obviously, demand continued to pick up and accelerate in a dramatic way. And it's going to be interesting to see whether that expense management piece outside of reducing people, how far that'll reach should the next downturn happen. Yeah, I think they realized they had more levers to pull and they did a pretty good job of it. Yeah, they did. And part of it is some of it is expense reduction just by the fact that you're not having people come into the office. Yeah, or go to retreats or paying for travel. travel to clients. Right. 
So you wrote a recent article that talked that we were talking about this juxtaposition between profit growth and firm structures, particularly about the reluctance to make equity partners in the industry. What are you what are you seeing there? Talk to us a little bit about that dynamic. Right. So I was writing about this contrast between sort of booming profits in 2021 and a relative sort of stagnant headcount among the largest firms, equity partner tiers. I did that as a follow-up to something I wrote at the end of last year when firms were really struggling with this retention problem. And I said, well, one way to solve your retention problem would be to use the growing value of these equity shares to reward people and keep people and incentivize people to stay. But of course, over the past like decade or so, firms have been very reluctant to grow their equity partner tiers. It's been managed very tightly. Well, I mentioned before, I think firms are they're being forced to pay their star partners, I think, or their most you know important people more than ever as the sort of dispersion in the industry makes it easier for bigger firms to pay the best performing lawyers more money than they might ever have thought they'd made. So as I was writing about was, you know, okay, if they're not going to make more partners now, when will they? And uh, I think some people kind of viewed that as like, well, that's an old story. That's been going on for a decade. I viewed it as a brand new story because revenue per lawyer had never grown, which a lot of people think is like the most, one of the more telling statistics about firms overall health. We hadn't seen revenue per lawyer grow as strongly as it did in 2021. So it does open up the question to, if not now, when? And I looked at the 37 firms in the MLO 100 who saw their partner tiers grow the most by a percentage, and then the 37 firms who saw their equity partner tier shrink by the biggest percentage. And if you would have just looked at their financial performance between those two groups, biggest shrinkers, biggest growers, you couldn't look at either of them and say, okay, one had a bad year. But you knew that the shrinkers just didn't decided not to grow their equity partner headcount. And even those firms saw revenue per lawyer grow 12% in a single year. Which is a huge number by historically. I mean, a huge, huge number. It's like 3% is like a good year because that's just historically. But they knocked it out of the park. Pretty much every MLO 100 firm knocked it out of the park last year. And still we saw this sort of stagnant headcount. And uh, it shows you how strong the pull is to maintain these profitability figures and probably the competition pressures that they face to pay their most important partners. But it also, I think, makes you question sort of the sustainability of that strategy. I mean, you could take it to the absurd and you could point out any firm in the M100, if it wanted to, could have the highest profits per partner. If they just had one partner, you know, you could have a... No, that is the way the math works. Right. It's math. And you could have a $50 million profits per partner with one person standing there taking home the whole bag. But I don't think anybody would look at that firm and say, man, they're doing great. They're healthy for the long term. Obviously, this is an absurd analogy, but it's instructive, I think. No, I think it is in that it is an interesting view of it coming off of the years the industry's had in the last two years. You, the, the question you ask, if not now, when is an apt one, I think. You know, the, the management of the equity partner headcount has been a business tool firms have used for a long time, but circumstances are different now. You're, you're absolutely right. I know we're about out of time, but the last question I have for you is, 
over the years you've you've written about change and innovation and law in law firms. Is there anything you've seen over over your time period of reporting in that area that got you excited or thought that's really cool? The thing that I've always been super interested in and I've covered it just a little bit and I've spoken to a lot of people who are involved in efforts about it, but I've not sort of seen it implemented to the extent that I think. Anyway, it's using data to figure out, to better predict court case outcomes, I think is always something that's attracted my eye from like a possibility standpoint. And there's people out there who talk about it. There's people out there who want to do it. I don't know if it'll ever actually happen, but if it did, or if people do get better at that, I think it has pretty huge ramifications for the justice system, for the financials of these big law firms, for any lawyer for that matter, and for the strategies that litigants pursue in court cases. Because, I mean, part of the reason lawsuits happen is because of uncertainty. And if you can take some level of uncertainty about an outcome out of a particular lawsuit, it really changes the dynamics very quickly. And uh, I wrote about one startup I think you could probably pose it as, and they claimed to be able to predict very high outcomes in patent appeals, which of course only take place in one court, federal circuit. And they also said that they could pick for you the best lawyer to win your case. (laughs) And so I I got a demo of that product, which I wouldn't mention the name, even if I remembered it, but they gave me the demo. It was a real case. They showed me and they said, this is, this is like the three or four lawyers who we think would be the best for these parties. And I took notes and I called those lawyers and one of the guys was like semi-retired working as the general counsel <laughs> of a law firm. And I said, there's a, there's a software program out there that says you should be defending this multi-billion dollar company in a patent case. He says, I don't even do that type of work. <laughs> oh, I love startups. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't mean to pick on them because I do think that idea holds so much. I don't even know what the word is, but it's so appealing in the abstract that I I understand why people chase it. I'm not sure it's been accomplished yet by giving that guy's answer. But if there was one thing I'm waiting for, one thing I'm interested in seeing or developments in, I think that's it. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. You, You and the litigation finance types waiting for that particular tool. Well, Roy, we, we've run out of time. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation. For our listeners, we'll put links to some of your columns. You write a weekly column in Bloomberg Law. So subscribe and read Roy's column. It's always interesting. Roy, thank you so much for your time. No, no, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.